Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of territory together. Um, and hopefully this will be helpful as you try to kind of go through your life and figure out where, that, where those boundaries should be. The first one goes like this. Uh, I think the first thing we need to do is start, uh, start with the right questions. We need to start by asking the right questions. And uh, this one really deals largely with your attitude. Now let me explain what I mean. There's basically two different attitudes or approaches we can have when we, when we try to answer this whole issue of where boundaries should be. One approach or one set of questions is, how much can I get away with without ruining my life completely? You know, like, how, how, far, how close to the line can I get or even go over the line but not get burned too badly? That's kind of one approach. The other, the other side says, comes out a different way and asks a different set of questions. And the set of questions goes like this. It's, what is God's best for my life? Or how can I please God in this situation? Now, here's what I'd suggest to you. The set of questions you start with will largely determine whether you're successful in this area of your life. In other words, if your goal is to get as close to the line or get away with as much as possible, maybe even going over a little bit and step back, you're probably going to have problems in this area of your life. But if your attitude is, I'm going to ask the right questions, God, what's your best for my life? I want to do it your way. I want to please you. Then you're off to a good start. Now, we're going to be using your Bibles quite a bit this evening. And uh, if you have your Bible, open up to uh, the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 7. Now, if you don't have your Bible encourage you to bring your Bible, always a single purpose. Uh, almost every month we will use it. And if you don't have your Bible, please uh, look on with someone who does have one because we will be using them quite a bit. You have one in the car? Not real helpful. Yeah. Okay. Now, let me explain the situation here. Uh, Jesus is teaching, and the people in Jerusalem are trying to figure out, is this guy the Messiah or not? Is he the real deal? Now, you know, from 2,000 years history, we, we've got a lot of reason to believe Jesus is the Messiah, but from their point of view, he was really a different kind of Messiah than they were looking for, and his teaching was really stretching them. And so it was really legitimate for them to be asking, I mean, is this guy the, you know, the one we're supposed to be looking for? Is this teaching for real? And Jesus gives them uh, one of the most important spiritual principles of discern, about discernment in all the Bible. This is one of my favorite verses on, on just kind of discerning God's will uh, on any area of our life. And, but it's very powerful. It's in verse 16, and it goes like this. Jesus answered, he said, my teaching is not my own. Of course, they were wondering, is he making this teaching up or is it really from God? He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And then look at this next uh, statement. If anyone chooses to do God's will, in other words, it is a desire of your heart and the intention of your heart to do God's will. You've already made up that issue. The issue is not, well, am I going to do God's will? It's more, I'm going to do it as long as I can find it. Okay? I've made up my mind. It says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, then he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So what Jesus says is the key to discernment has to do not so much with our intelligence, it has to do with our heart attitude towards obedience. 
He says, if our heart is really set on obeying God, then we will be able to discern what God is telling us to do. That's the principle. Now, I think this is so important in the whole sexual realm because I think a lot of people, the way we do this is what we decide is, well, God, why don't you help me to figure out what your will is in terms of setting my standards, and then I'll decide whether I'm going to obey it or not. You see? Now, we don't actually come out and say that, but it's really sort of the truth. It's kind of like, God, help me to figure out your will, and then I'll decide whether it's too strict or not. And what Jesus is saying is that is just not a good way to figure out truth in the whole spiritual realm, is that what we have to decide is, okay, God, I, I have made the decision. I will do your will. Now you help me to understand what it looks like. And our attitude really determines whether we will be successful or not. Now let's go to another passage. It's uh, to the right in your Bibles, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is a passage that we've looked at before in this series a couple times, but we're looking at it for a little different reason now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, this is a passage that talks about sexual purity, the importance of sexual purity. But what I want you to see is the context of this passage. The context of this passage is pleasing God. Chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to, catch this, to please God. That's the subject matter, right? So we were with you. We taught you a whole bunch of things. The whole point was to teach you how to please God. Then in verse 3, he goes on and kind of starts spelling out what that looks like in our life. And he says, it's, first of all, it's God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now he goes on, he talks about sexual immorality for several verses, why it's so important. So we've looked at it before. The only point I want you to catch is that sexual purity is a subset of pleasing God. Okay? The first decision we have to make in our life is do we want to please God in our life? Is that the top priority in our life? Here's what I'd suggest to you. If pleasing God is not the top priority in your life, then it's almost for sure that you're going to fail in this whole area of sexual purity. Because it's such a powerful area that it kind of brings out the worst in us, so to speak. So, so the, the issue is, how do I please God? Once we say, yeah, that is my goal in life, then God can give us wisdom on how to do it in the sexual area. You see, first things first. So the first step is we've got to start with the right questions. There's a great quote there uh, by a lady named Lois Raby. She uh, wrote an article back in Single Parent Magazine back in October of 95. But, but I like just how she says this. She says, the answer to sexual purity lies in our love relationship with Christ. If Christ isn't first in our lives, we will have little motivation to limit sexual expression. See, that's what I'm saying. Is that if, if we've not really made the prior decision, I really want to live for God, I want to please Him, I want to do life God's way, I want to get the best out of life. If we've not decided that issue, then our chance of being able to set our standards right in this other area is almost impossible. We'll just fail. Okay, number two. Now the second one we're going to spend quite a, a bit of time on because it's really uh, extremely important and I think it's often a, a misunderstood area in Christian circles. It has to do with our conscience and it goes like this. Number two, we need to listen to our conscience and to our partner's conscience. 
So the first step is we, we ask the right question. So the right question is, God, what do you want me to do? How do I please you in this area? I want to get your best for my life. That's the first starting point. The next thing, step we take is we ask God, or we look inside and we listen to our conscience. Now, um, our conscience is not always right. In fact, we will talk about that quite a bit in just a minute. But it is a place to begin. We need to start and say, what do I feel good about? What do I feel okay about? At what point do I start to feel nervous or shaky or uncomfortable? That is where uh, we need to begin. If you were here last month, we talked a little bit about the conscience. So one thing we saw is that when it comes to uh, our walk with God, that anytime we blow through our conscience or ignore our conscience, it results or leads us, puts us in danger of a spiritual shipwreck. I don't know if you want to re we remember we talked about the Titanic as an illustration of that. And that, that anytime we just kind of ignore our conscience, it's sort of like there's a lighthouse there going iceberg, 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 and we just keep on going uh, towards it. We looked at the verse that's here on your note sheet, 1 Timothy 1.19, where Paul says to the young single uh, man, Timothy, hold on to faith and to good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. So whenever we violate or ignore our conscience, we are in danger of shipwrecking our faith. It kind of sets us on that course. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about our conscience a little bit, how it operates, because this is a huge importantly, uh, hugely important principle, not only for this whole year of sexual purity, but for all of life. And uh, I think it'll be helpful. So I want to talk about understanding your conscience. But to do that, we need to turn to a passage of Scripture and look at a particular case study in the New Testament in Romans chapter 14. So if you turn there, back to the left. It's funny here at North Coast, we have a lot of uh, people that, that don't know Christ to come to our services, and we affectionately call them window shoppers because they're sort of looking in the window, not sure if they want to come in and buy. And, uh, and so we, we never assume they know their Bibles real well, so we always tell them, move to the right, move to the left, that sort of thing. So uh, if you're like, why does he tell us move to, you know, turn to the right? That's why. It's sort of a habit. Anyway, um, let me set the, set the stage here. In Romans chapter 14, there's an there's a, a issue going on in the early church. In fact, it was, a, it was a major issue in the early church, and it had to do with whether you could eat certain kinds of meat. Now, from our perspective here in the 20th century, it's like, hello? That is the big issue of the first century, you know, whether to have roast beef or not. Um, but it really was a big issue, and it was primarily for two reasons. One had to do with the, uh, the Jewish dietary laws of the Old Testament that prohibited you from eating certain kinds of meat. And sometimes the new Christians wanted to know, do those laws still apply to us today? And so that was one part of the issue. But a bigger part of the issue is that a lot of the meat that was sold in meat markets in those days was meat that had been sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple and then kind of sold um, at the, the meat market. And so when you went down to buy some hamburger, it might be like idol burger, you see? <laughs> and so um, as a result of this, you can imagine that there was really some um, disagreement in the Christian community of whether it was okay to eat idol meat or not. You know, it's like, you know, you kind of, you go down the butcher and it's got the saran wrap says idle meat on it. It's like, is it okay to buy that? Uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's on sale, idle meat, you know, two for the price of one. And so um, some Christians felt very strongly that, you know what, we should not be eating idle meat. I mean, it's probably got like idle cooties or something, you know, and it's just, it's just this stuff, you know, is sacrificed to idols, you know, it was a demonic thing. I mean, maybe it's got like demons in it, whatever. And so we should stay away from idle meat. 
And other Christians felt like, no, come on. I mean, the meat doesn't know where it's been. You know, it's like, give me a break. You know, it's just, it's just meat. And, uh, you know, it's all the same. And so, and so there was this big division. But here's the point that's important for us is that there was a huge difference. There was a big issue. There was a huge difference in conscience. The one group of Christians, their conscience felt we should not be doing this. The other group of Christians felt like it, their conscience said it's fine. And so it gives a great case study for us to see how conscience works in our lives. And from that study, we're not going to read through all Romans 14, but I'm going to give you three points from this passage, and then we'll look at specific verses that kind of uh, point this out to understand how our conscience works. So here's number one. The first thing we need to understand about our conscience is, number one, is that your conscience is not always right. Now, this is surprising to some people. Because we tend to think, many Christians tend to think of our conscience as being equal to the Holy Spirit. So if our conscience, if we're uncomfortable, we assume God is uncomfortable with it. You know, our conscience is, is telling us. Really, what our conscience is, all it tells us is kind of what our own internal standards of right and wrong are telling us. That's what it tells us, okay? And so our conscience can be too liberal or our conscience can be too conservative, and that's what Paul says in this passage. See, you've got two sets of Christians. One says we shouldn't be able to eat meat. Their conscience says you can't eat meat. One says you can. Obviously, somebody's conscience has to be wrong, right? And if you look at verse 14, Paul says it's the no idol meat people. It's their conscience that's wrong. In verse 14, he says, As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So he says, the meat is totally fine. I realize that some of you, your conscience is, you know, feels bad about this, but I'm telling you, your conscience is wrong. The meat is fine. Is that pretty clear? Okay. Now what this means in our lives is that sometimes our conscience can be wrong, and especially in this area of sexuality, it's often that our conscience gets messed up. Your conscience might be too conservative or too liberal. Maybe you've known someone, or you, you, maybe you are this person, or you've heard of people like this, who that even, let's say, after they get married, they can't really enjoy sex in marriage because they just feel like somehow it's dirty or it's not a good thing, right? Uh, you just kind of, whatever the reason. It might be because of the way they were taught. They might have been, uh, had some uh, sexual molestation in their life. Or, but for whatever reason, they just feel like it's a, it's a bad thing. Their conscience tells them it's wrong, and yet we know scripturally, as we've studied, that it's a good thing, right, within marriage. So our conscience can be too conservative, but on the other hand, Sometimes our conscience can be way too liberal, especially if we've ignored our conscience for a long time. It gets to a place where it doesn't even, like, talk to us anymore, you know? And so it's, it's, it's like, hey, what do you think? And it's like, you know, afraid to talk. It's been, you know, silent for years. You've just kind of you've told it to shut up for so long. And so our conscience can be too liberal. It can be too conservative. But the point is our conscience is not always right in these matters. Okay, number two. The second point is that you should never, and this is really sort of surprising. I mean, we just would not guess this unless Paul said it. You should never violate your conscience even when it's wrong. Now, you'd, you'd, what you'd expect is the Apostle Paul would say this. He'd say, look, you non-meat eaters, you're just, you're wrong. Your conscience is wrong. It's fine to eat this meat. Go ahead and eat the meat, right? That's what you expect him to say. But he doesn't. He says, 
Well, in fact, let's look at it in 14, verse 14 again. We just looked at the first part. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But look what he says next. But if anyone regards something as unclean, in other words, if you think of it as unclean, it's unclean to you, he says, then for him it is unclean. So he says, if you don't feel comfortable in your conscience eating the meat, then don't eat the meat. Now, what does that mean in terms of our sexual standards? Well, here's what it means. I see this all the time in Christian circles where someone will try to convince someone else that their sexual standard is wrong. They will say, oh, you're being too conservative here, or you're so uptight, you need to relax a little bit. And, and they will kind of like, you know, tell them, hey, you need to loosen up. And the person saying, but I don't feel right about it. But they begin to wonder, well, should I just do it anyway? All my friends are telling me, like, you know, I'm too conservative. And what Paul would say is, no, you never violate your conscience. Now, see, sometimes our conscience needs to be recalibrated. We'll talk about that later on. But he says, until it gets recalibrated, until you find God shows you that it's too tight or too restrictive or whatever, or too liberal, you don't change things. You, you kind of follow it until you have some clarity on this issue. And what this means, um, I think, in, in, our, in the sexual realm, especially in dating, is it means, I mean, you never push someone to violate their conscience, even if you think their conscience is wrong. In fact, that leads to the next one. Number three, you should never push someone to violate his conscience, even if it's wrong. And this is a tragic thing that happens in dating oftentimes. Because often... What happens in a dating relationship is that one person will have a more liberal conscience than the other person, right? And what tends to happen is the more liberal person pushes the more conservative person. Often they will do it by kind of mocking that person or making fun, you know, you're too much of a prude or you're too conservative or loosen up a little bit or, you know, it's like kind of join the new millennium or, you know, whatever the thing is but they will push the other person and they genuinely in their heart feel like they're doing the person a favor because they feel like they're too tight, you know, and, and like God's okay with this. But the point is, is whenever we push someone to violate their conscience, even if they're wrong, we are pushing them to sin. Now, you say, really? And, yep, really. Look at verse uh, 20. He says, do not destroy, Paul says, we're talking about the food again. Okay, so you know, you're with some brother who thinks that you shouldn't be eating the food. He says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. He says, all food is clean. So you see, there's a standard again. It's fine to eat the food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So he says, you know, you're at a barbecue. You got a buddy there. And you, you say, hey, have you had the burgers? The guy says, no, they're idle burgers. <laughs> he says, oh, man, they're great. You should have one. Oh, no, they're sacrificed. No, have one. He says, by pushing that burger on the guy, you are, you are pushing him towards violating his conscience, pushing him towards sinning and destroying the work of God in that person's life. You see? Now, it's your own place. Fine, have your burger. You know, it's not the issue. The issue is you don't want to put someone else in a place where they're violating their conscience. He says in verse 21, it's better not to uh, eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Verse 22, 
So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. In other words, if you like the idle meat and it tastes good and you get a bargain, enjoy it. Verse 23, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is what? Sin. So he's already said it's fine to eat meat. There's nothing wrong with the meat. He says, but if you eat meat and you don't feel you should eat the meat, for you it is what? Sin. So translate that into dating. You're, you're, you're dating someone. You feel like it's fine going to a certain level of physical. They feel like it's sin. When you push them there, what are you causing them to do? Sin. See, it might be fine for you, but for them, you're causing them to sin. That's a very serious thing. So practically what this means is not only that we should never push anyone past their standard, but secondly, it means this, that practically when you're in a dating relationship, the more conservative person always draws the line. Okay? Does that make sense? That the more conservative person always says, this is my comfort zone, this is what I feel is appropriate before God, great, end of discussion. That is where the line is then, because to do otherwise is to lead that person into sin and to destroy the relationship with God. Now, obviously, you say, but Mike, sometimes people are, you know, they might, their, their conscience might be messed up. Absolutely, we already said that. We'll talk later a little bit about recalibrating it, but uh, we need to start there. Okay, number three. We spent longer on that one, but I think it's an important one. Number three, the third step we need to take is we need to ask ourselves the tough questions. Now, would you agree with me that when you're dating someone and you're starting to feel the passion coming on, that it's a little bit hard to be honest with yourself about what your conscience is saying to you? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, well, I'm not sure I'm hearing it quite right, you know? I mean, you know, I think it's a little uptight. It's all childhood things, you know, whatever. Um, it's just a little hard to be honest with ourselves in this area. And so I found that one way to help us get honest is to ask ourselves some tough questions. And I put, them, uh, I put three examples there. Um, I'm sure there are others. In fact, uh, you know, after this meeting, one of our after-meeting venues is called Conversations, where you can kind of go discuss this topic in greater depth. And in there, one of the questions today has to do with what other tough questions. So you might have other ones that you've come up with. But here's, uh, here's number one. One question to ask yourself, just to get in touch with your conscience, is how would you want others to treat, and then I'm going to do it from a, ma a man's perspective, uh, since that's what I am. But... Um, I just feel more comfortable that way. But uh, how would you want others to treat your sister, daughter, or future spouse? How would you want another man? Now, of course, if you're a woman, you're going to flip this around. I'll help you out here. Brother, son, or future spouse. Last answer stays the same. Um, but if you're, you know, how would you want someone else, some man, to be treating your sister or, or maybe your daughter, if you have a daughter, or uh, your future spouse? Uh, I think it's a helpful question to get in touch with how we feel about these things. For example, uh, you know, let's say you're dating someone right now and they're really not the one for you. You're just two months away from finding it, okay? And, um, and, and actually, the one for you is like three people away, okay? And so... You're sitting there going like, what a bummer. You mean I've got two more to go through? Whatever, right? Okay. Yeah. But you do understand you don't always hit it right the first time. 
Okay, so, so the person you're marrying is like three hops away, okay? And, <laughs> okay, um, they're three jumps away. They're three, you know, three steps away. They're, they're a little bit away, all right? Um, now, they right now, though destined for you, they are dating someone else. Now, here's a helpful thing. They're dating someone else. What do you want them to be doing right now? What are you comfortable with their level of physicality right now? You see? That's a good question. Because if you're not comfortable, whatever that line is, that's probably where your line should be in your life right now. Because someday you will meet. And then you'll have to deal with that. Okay, number two. Uh, the second question is, how comfortable would you be seeing this person if you break up? How comfortable would you be seeing this person if you break up? And Now, obviously, when you break up with someone, it's often an awkward situation. Uh, and, and I don't, you know, it's just kind of awkward because you don't know what to say or you know, how do you respond or what, whatever. I'm not talking about that kind of awkwardness. I'm talking about an awkwardness where you feel awkward because what you did together, you just feel wasn't the right thing. And so now you kind of see them and you just feel like kind of bad about that. Like, like oh, we shouldn't have done that. And uh, maybe you even kind of like, were thinking you were going to get married and so you could kind of rationalize, well, it's okay because we're going to get married or whatever. But, but you know, you see them. And, and I think it's a good question to ask. Would you feel comfortable? Um, years ago, uh, there was an Elton John song. Um, this great theologian. Um, <laughs> I'm very helpful. Um, called uh, I Want to Kiss the Bride. Anyone, anyone remember that song? Okay, thank you, one person. Um, okay, obviously. Anyway, thank you, Rich. Appreciate that. Um, anyway, it's, it's a song, and it's written from the, kind of a man's perspective. He's sitting in the audience at a wedding. And, and the woman he used to date is, is now getting married. And so she's up there. And, of course, he's thinking about her and kind of remembering their times together. And there's this one line in the song that always stood out to me. And it goes like this. It says, and if the groom would have known, he'd had a fit about his wife and the things we did. And the question is, if you see someone after you break up, they marry someone, would they have a fit? You know, do you feel comfortable about your level of involvement? That's a good, tough question. Uh, by the way, I did some call them tough questions. These aren't easy questions, are they? Um, number three. Here's the third one. How comfortable would you be if your actions were made public? <laughs> so you're going, oh boy, that's really, that's really a tough one. Now let me define what I mean by public. Imagine a screen. No, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, that's not what I mean. <laughs> uh, it's Sunday morning church, and <laughs> worship has just gone off. And, yeah. Here's Joe and Sue. No. Um, okay. No, I, I don't mean public in the sense like everyone knows, or your mother knows, or your most conservative friend or grandmother knows, or whatever. What I'm talking about is those people in your life that you respect the most, that... Uh, 
you know, you, you, you kind of do the Christian life together. You respect them. They respect you. Maybe your mentors could be some pastor in your life. But the people that you really respect and you've kind of connected with and you're sort of on the same page about physical levels of involvement, the question is, would you be comfortable with those people knowing your level of involvement? And, and I think it's just a good question to ask ourselves. Okay. So uh, ask yourself the tough questions. Number four. The fourth step... I think in setting our standards, is this one, to take your past into consideration. Now, we all come from different pasts here. Um, some of us, last week I said, some of us are men and some of us are women. It was very, <laughs> took five minutes to get everyone back after that one. But... Um, it's like, and we're taking notes. Um, but anyway, uh, isn't it like someone else's turn to talk? Uh, anyway, uh, but, uh, but we come from different backgrounds. Uh, some of us uh, are single, never have been married. Uh, some of us are uh, 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 single, but we were, uh, we've, uh, are divorced. And so we've been married once before or more than once before. Uh, some of us come from very promiscuous backgrounds whether you are married or single or your whole life, or whatever, but very promiscuous. Some of you come from very uh, kind of a, a morally, a sexually pure background, okay? And so we all come from different backgrounds. And the thing is, it's a mistake to think that we all can have the same standards because we come to the game uh, with different sets of experiences. And there's sort of a basic rule of thumb, and I put it there in your note sheet, the basic rule. Here's the basic rule when you're taking your past into consideration. The more experienced you are, and I don't mean that necessarily in a good way, by the way. It could be, you know, a good experience or bad experience. But the more experienced you are, the more careful you need to be. Now, all that means is that, you know, the more sexual experience you've had, it really impacts kind of the standards that you have now as you're trying to follow Christ in your life. And this is surprising to some Christians. In fact, it's surprising especially to two groups of Christians. I think, you know, it's, we're all somewhat surprised by this, but surprising especially to uh, people who are newly divorced. This whole thing takes them by surprise. Or people who are um, newly Christians. New, you're new Christians. Let me explain why. For the newly divorced, let's say that uh, you've been following Christ, you've been married 15 years or 20 years or 25 years or 10 years or whatever the thing is, and all of a sudden your spouse just decides that they don't want to be married anymore. And so they leave you, and you really want nothing to do with this divorce. I mean, you want to kind of work this through. You want to go to counseling. You, you want to be married, and that's kind of what God says. And you want to do that. They want nothing to do with this. They, they have an affair or they have a midlife crisis or whatever the deal, um, but they, they leave, Okay. And so suddenly you find yourself single after being married for many years. And your life is shattered and you don't know what to do and you don't know who you are and your whole life is falling, falling apart. It's falling apart perhaps financially, it's falling apart socially. You lose your friends because married friends don't want to be with you now and they feel awkward and you feel awkward with them. And, and so your whole life falls apart. And so for a while... You just kind of hang out by yourself or hang out with, you know, find some new friends who are single or whatever. You're not interested in dating. You just kind of like that, can't even think about there, can't even go there. 
But after a while, you begin to heal, and so there comes a time when you start thinking about dating again. And as you go into dating, you have two assumptions, two assumptions that are both equally wrong. Oh, if life were easy. Number one, uh, since you're a Christian and you plan to date Christians, you assume that the person you're dating is going to have a high standard of moral purity. Because after all, they're a Christian. You know, you're a Christian, you have a high standard. And, and so uh, you assume they're going to share this high standard. That's your first mistake. The second mistake is that you assume that you're older and wiser now than you were when you were 16. <laughs> Hmm. Big mistake. <laughs> the first part of the assumption is right. You are older. Um, it's the wiser part that is the problem here. It's amazing to me how when people fall in love, they are always 16 again. It doesn't really matter their chronological age. That we all become like 16, which when most of us were 16, we're pretty... Stupid, right? <laughs> so that's kind of a nice way of saying we sort of, you know, we, around here we have a saying, you lose your heart, you lose your head. Anyway, it's just true is that uh, our judgment gets impaired. And here's the deal, is that when someone has been kind of, who's been following Jesus, goes through this divorce, they start dating again. Here's what they assume. They assume that I am so much wiser now than I, I did this the first time. You know, I'm just older, I'm wiser, I have more perspective on life. But what they don't realize is that their body has a long memory. And we'll talk about that more in a second. And all of a sudden, they go into this relation dating someone they assume has the same standards as they do, assuming that they are stronger, they're wiser, they have greater willpower when they were 16. And all of a sudden, and it can happen in a single night, they go from A to Z and wake up saying, how did I, as a 35-year-old, as a 45-year-old person who loves Jesus and has followed him all these years, how did I end up in sexual sin? And I see it over and over again. Because we don't understand that we bring our whole background with us. And when you were 16, hopefully, you know, some of you, this will not be for you, but hopefully when you were 16, you weren't sexually active. So there was all these barriers to having sex, natural barriers, to kind of go through this and go through this and go through this and there was time to slow down, stop or whatever. But when you're later on in life and you're sexually experienced, that is a very slippery slope and it can happen like that. So for newly divorced, I see this as a special danger, but I also see it for newer Christians because often when we become a Christian, uh, there's such a dramatic change that we undergo. We just kind of feel such like a new person. Yeah, I was talking to one of my daughters recently, and someone she was working with uh, became a Christian about a year ago, a young woman uh, out on her own, had been married and so on, but she became a Christian. Her life was totally messed up. I mean, I, it's a long story. I wouldn't go into it, but, but uh, totally messed up. And when Jesus came into her life, there was such a dramatic change that a year later, she is like a new person. And that often happens when a person comes to Christ. It's like that scripture that says if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have gone, the new have come. And so we feel so new that but then we come to a group like this and we hear a talk about sexual purity and we say, absolutely, I'm 100% there. I just totally buy into that. 
And so we, we really see ourselves, we are new, we have new standards, we're safe. But this is where our body betrays us. Because our bodies have long memories. It's sort of like typing. You know they always say typing comes back to you? It's true. And that some of our strongest memories are physical memories, body memories. And once you get back in that mode, in spite of the fact that you're a new believer in Christ, you have new standards, you can suddenly kick in, those body memories kick in, and you can just be there again, and all of a sudden, and wake up in serious trouble. So what this means is that you really have to take into consideration your own personal history when it comes to setting your standard. Let me give you three practical suggestions. We'll talk about these more next month. You know, this month we're talking about how to set your standards. Next month we're talking about how to keep the standards once you set them. And of course, that is the more difficult of the two, which is why we're ending the series with that. But anyway, uh, three practical suggestions. We'll talk more about this next month. But number one is tighter boundaries. That uh, if you want to succeed and you've been sexually active in the past, whether in marriage or outside of marriage or whatever, you're going to have to have tighter boundaries. You're going to have to watch where you go, where you spend your time, how physical you get. And like I said, we'll talk about that more next month. Number two, uh, shorter engagements. Uh, it just doesn't work. The five-year plan, you know, it's just <laughs> like, you know, hey, 36 monthly installments on that ring. I think that, you know... <laughs> We get engaged now, and you know I should be able to pay that thing off by about 2005. Uh, just does not work, you know, when you've been around the block a few times. Okay, number three, a wiser perspective. You've just got to have a wiser perspective on this and that. And uh, write down this phrase; it'll be helpful. Others may, but I cannot. Others may, or I cannot. You just have to have that mentality. Someone says, oh, well, I can kind of go this far or do this or whatever, and I'm doing fine. It's like you just need to have the mentality that might be fine for you, you know, but others may, I cannot. And number four or five, the fifth step in setting our standards is that we need to listen to your body. Now, last week they said, no, that's the last thing I need to do. Well, um, well yeah, let me define that. You know, that's what got me into trouble. Now, uh, uh, listen to your body, and you might want to put in parentheses, this is where the arousal meter comes in, okay? In other words, you need to learn to be in touch with your own body and, and your own kind of arousal level, because a very fa the fact of the matter is, is that you can't stay aroused for a really long time without one of two things happening. The one, you become incredibly frustrated or number two, you step over the line that you've set for yourself. So when you put yourself in a spot where you're kind of high, creating high levels of arousal, your arousal meter's up, you just, like, you really are in the wrong parking spot. I mean, you need to move that thing because it's just not going to work that way. It's, the old, it's sort of the old rule that when you're on a diet, you, know, you just don't go to bakeries. You know, it's just kind of, <laughs> it's not smart. So what, what this means is if you're listening to your own body, you kind of have to say, at what point do I really start getting some serious arousal going here? You know, whatever that is, I need to back it off, and that's my limit. I mean, that's just, I can't go there. Now, this will really vary from person to person. Uh, you know, for some of you, it might be kind of very conservative, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. 
Others you may say, well, I can handle kissing, but I can't handle kind of the long, you know, make-out kind of kissing, uh, kind of impassioned kissing. Uh, some will say, well, I can handle the kissing, but I can't do the French kissing thing. Or some will say, well, I do the French kissing thing, but I can't, you know, do the neck kissing thing. And I'm kind of stopped right there. But you sort of, Sarah. Some of you, I, I saw one of my friends from Single Purpose at the gym this week, and she said, man, it was getting hot in that room last week, and, you know, we're just going to have to put the air on a little cooler, but uh, I'll stop right there. But you kind of get the point, right, that you have to kind of know yourself and pay attention to yourself. Uh, Don Ronica wrote the book Choosing God's Best. It's one of the uh, popular books on courtship dating these days. And uh, there's, a, there's a quote there that I thought was helpful. He says, how far can you go physically during the courtship period? He says, when we reach a point of physical involvement in which we become aroused, we have crossed the threshold of sin. Waiting until we become aroused is a dangerous indicator we've gone too far. Now, here's the part that I agree with. I, I, I agree that this whole issue of arousal and the arousal meter is a very helpful concept. Uh, I don't know if I could go so far as to say it's sin, because, you know, arousal can happen so fast in so many different situations. And so, I, personally, I would not probably go that far to say it's sin. But what I, what I would say is it's unwise to put ourselves in a place of long-term, you know, arousal. It's just asking for problems. Uh, if we're serious about doing it God's way, it's just, you know, it's kind of like, God, I really want to obey you. But I just want to put myself in a situation here where every nerve of my body is screaming to disobey you. And then, you know, let you deliver me. Um, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, God, this will be an incredible miracle, you know, I mean, because, because I'm just about to lose it right now, and, and as you save me, you're going to get the glory, I'm telling you. Uh, it's kind of like that verse, you know, uh, you know it's, it's lead me not into temptation, it's not, you know, lead me to temptation as far as I can go, and then save me the nick of time. Okay, number six. Uh, earlier we talked about recalibrating our conscience, and this one uh, kind of plays in here. It's listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if that sounds real mystical to you or not, but, you know, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he left, he said, I have to leave, but I'm going to send you another counselor to be with you, and he will lead you into all truth. That is kind of the job of the Holy Spirit. The job of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to truth in all areas of our life. It's not just like biblical truth. It's all truth because all truth is God's truth. And so his job is to kind of to lead us into the truth we need to please God throughout our life. Uh, you know, I work out at the gym a lot, and I always see these uh, personal trainers there. And uh, I, I think of the Holy Spirit sometimes as a personal trainer. Someone who comes alongside us spiritually and says, okay, now here, do it this way, do it that way. Another term I've used over the years is a mentor. The Holy Spirit is like a mentor. You'll notice in your Bibles that different translations will translate the word uh, uh, in this passage, John 14, that's there. Uh, they'll translate the word of the Holy Spirit differently. In this version, it says counselor. You notice it says, all this I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the counselor uh, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, remind you of everything I've said to you. So it says counselor, but other versions will say things like uh, the helper, uh, the advocate. And it's a, it's a word in the Greek that's hard to really, we don't really have kind of a word that's just one word that does it all. It's, uh, you know, the word parakletos, which means the one called alongside, para and kletos, called alongside, one called alongside to help. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to walk through life, to come alongside of us, to help us. And here's the point. 
If the Holy Spirit can't help us to figure out how to please God in this area of our life, then what good is he? You see? We've already learned in this series, this is an incredibly important area to God. And so what I believe is that if you want to know what the Holy Spirit is telling in this area, you should ask him. And if you want to know and you're willing to obey, that he can help recalibrate your conscience. And he might do it through books. He might do it through uh, counseling. He might do it through uh, friends and discussion. He might just do it directly, giving you the insight. So we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. And then number seven, the last step, is we need to never forget that less is often more. Now, We've talked about this principle throughout this series a little bit, that, that often in the physical realm, in the dating stage, not in the marriage stage, but in the dating stage, that less is often more, that less physical can mean more emotional in a relationship. That less physical can mean more relational. That less sexual can be more spiritual. We've talked many times about how when we get overly involved sexually, what it does is it derails the emotional development and the oneness that should be happening in a relationship. And we need to remember this principle when it comes to setting our standards. You know, over the years, I've had the privilege of talking to so many couples in single purpose and working through this particular whole issue. And you know, what I've found is I've never had one couple who has ever come back to me and said, Mike, we decided to be conservative in our standards. And man, what a mistake that was. You know, we just, boy, we are really sorry about that. You know, we're broken up now. We think of, boy, what a missed opportunity. You know, or, <laughs> or you know, now we're married, and we just look back and say, what a wasted time. You know, we, we should have been going for it. I've never once had anyone say, I take a conservative standard, and I'm sorry for it. I don't care how conservative the standard is. Never once. Every time someone takes a conservative standard, they've always said, I am so glad we took a conservative standard, whatever that standard was, I'm so glad because, and here are the incredible benefits, and they'll tell me that. They will come up to me today. I had a couple come up like last month who got married a year or two ago, and they came up and saw what I was teaching on this series, and they said, Man, I wish we could come back to single purpose and tell them how God has blessed our lives because we followed his standards that you taught us. They said, the dividends just keep piling on month after month and year after year. It is unbelievable. And I said, well, you know what? One of these days I want to have a panel discussion of couples from single purpose who have kind of implemented this stuff in their life and just have them back and let's just talk to them about the benefits that they've experienced. That's just, that's right. I, that happens to me all the time. I, I, I see, I've never had a couple say, I'm sorry that we we're conservative. But on the flip side, talk about crash and burn couples, that over and over and over, I get so sick of hearing it. Not because, like, mad at them, but it's when you hear, they say, you were so right. And I go, I'm tired of hearing how right I am. You know? <laughs> it's like the one time in my life I don't want to hear how right I am. You see what I'm saying? Because it's just so painful for them. 
You know, it's not like I'm upset with them, like I'm sick of hearing that. It's, it's, it's just my heart goes out to them because you can't get back what you lost. It's just like this wound that's there. Let me give you, uh, and what I've often found is in these conservative couples, you know, they say, you know what happens is once we limited our, our standards, we limited like our, our level, what happened is the simple touch became so powerful a communicator. It's like this simple touch that we would have taken for granted became such a powerful tool of communication. The, the simple hug, the simple kiss, the simple holding of hands, the affection that was communicated, the power of it was unbelievable. They'll say it was so different in other relationships and they'll kind of contrast the two. Let me just tell you one story. Uh, a few years ago, we had a, a man in single purpose, single guy, never been married, mid-30s, really nice guy, uh, love God, uh, serve God, just tremendous guy, and uh, wanted to get married. In fact, uh, we would often stay after single purpose. We're much smaller than We would often stay after, and he would always give us an update on his dating situation. And, and he was just such a neat guy, and we'd often sit back, and he would often talk to Lynn about it. I'd be working on things, and he'd pull Lynn aside, and here's the news update of this thing. And, and so... He's such a great guy. And uh, finally one day, he met a woman who is also mid-30s, also never been married, and they, they hit it off. And uh, within a short period of time, things were really clicking, and they were talking about marriage. And after about a year, they got married. And uh, a lot of us had the privilege of going to that ceremony. And we were sitting there, and of course comes the time for the kiss. And you know how you do, you always rate the kiss. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, so, Afterwards, during the reception, we were kind of, you know, what do you think? And I give it a seven, you know, I give it an eight. You know. and, uh, but the ratings were very high that day. Like, wow, that was quite the kiss. And, you know, it's, whew, you know, that was like definitely like a nine or a ten. And, and, uh, and then someone came up and said, hey, you know, I just heard the rumor. And I just found out it's true that that was the first time that they'd kissed. And... Um, that uh, the story went on, and then they kissed on the cheeks, they kissed, you know, like that. But I mean, you know, kind of mouth to mouth resuscitate, you know, that first time. And, uh, you know, just practicing on my dummy, no. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you're breathing, pump, pump, no. Um. <laughs> anyway, no, first time, you know, kind of mouth to mouth kiss. And so, um, anyway, I remember one of the guys on our leadership team said to me, he said, man, he said, Boy, my, my respect level, my guy's going, he said, I already respect him way up here, but boy, the respect level even went up higher. You know, I thought that was true, but what really struck me was not so much that, but I just thought the wisdom that he, he demonstrated, because what they realized was this whole thing of less is more. And, and I'm not saying, by the way, that that should be the standard of everyone. I'll be real clear here. I, I think if I were single, it probably wouldn't be my standard. But you know, um, but here's the point. They understood this principle as less and more. And what they did is because they set a conservative standard, they spent a year getting to know one another. They didn't have to deal with all the constant stuff. What they understood is that the further down the slope you slide, and we'll talk about this next month, that sex is a progressive thing. The further down the slope you slide, the harder it is to stop the toboggan. And what people don't often don't understand is they think that, which you know what we'll do is I hate to draw the line here because, you know, it's just so hard to draw the line. Well, can I tell you something? It doesn't matter where you draw the line, the further down the hill, it's always harder to stop the toboggan. It doesn't get easier. And so what they did is they drew the line at the top of the hill, you see. 
And as a result of that, that incredible year of getting to know one another, incredible year of courtship. Uh, they didn't have to deal with the guilt. They didn't have to deal with all that kind of stuff. And God just really blessed them. So oftentimes, less is more. And it's hard to limit ourselves initially. It's hard to draw that line. But what you don't realize is that really in the long run, it becomes uh, often easier. There in your, uh, you don't have to pull this out. In fact, I encourage you not to. But uh, I wanted you to have a copy of it. I put inside of your, uh, your bulletin that blue sheet. I want to tell you a little about this. I want to end with this. Um, Josh McDowell uh, had a book in this whole area. He's done a lot of writing in this whole area of sexuality. He included a letter from a father to a son about where to set the limits. It's a beautiful letter. And I think it's very wise advice. I want to end by just reading it. So just kind of sit back and listen, and then we'll be done. His son's name is Sean. He says, Dear Sean, yesterday you asked me a question that is not easy to answer, but it's a classic how far is too far in being physical with the girls you date? As a starting point, I know you desire Jesus Christ to be Lord in your life. Remember we, started with, we said start with asking the right questions. Well, there it is. So we should begin uh, by looking to the Bible for advice. Beyond the clear warning against sexual intercourse outside marriage, there isn't much else written in Scripture on the subject. It's not surprising, however, because at the time it was written, Jewish men and women hardly ever saw each other before marriage. The opportunity for anything sexual to happen just wasn't there. These days, the word petting gets defined a lot of different ways. So just so we both know what we're talking about, let's use the term to refer to the touching of breasts and genitals. And concerning various specific actions like these outside of marriage, the Bible is silent. Nothing is said about holding hands, kissing, hugging, French kissing, or any of the other things we'd call sexual activity. All these things fall into sort of a gray area. To work out what this means in real life, let's consider several things one at a time. The first is the issue of getting in touch with your own and your date's emotions, passions, and reasons why you do things. Remember we talked about uh, starting with your conscience and your date's conscience. It's that sort of a deal. Sexual arousal usually starts so slowly you don't realize it's happening. When one person's desire begins to rise above what is right and spiritual healthy for the other person, they've crossed an important line. A second issue to apply to the situation is a basic biblical commandment to love one another. Now, I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about the agape love found in 1 Corinthians 13, the kind that unselfishly seeks out God's very best for a brother or sister in Christ. Come on, those tough questions, see? Before the girl you're dating is anything else, she is a child of God and special and precious in his sight. The third key issue is to recognize that the physical affection between a guy and a girl is so exciting because God designed it that way. It's a basic drive, although it's not a basic need. And it's a progressive process. We've talked about that. One stage naturally leads to the next. Recently, Sean, I helped a, a high school girl figure out a chart of this progression. And if you, you might want to pull it out now if you don't have it. I'd like you to see this chart. Make sure you catch this. It's a blue sheet. Turn over the back. Recently, Sean, I helped a high school girl figure out a chart on this progression. I think you'll find the diagram below as interesting and helpful as it was for her. And you, you see at the top, you've got abstinence, and then we have necking, and he breaks that down into holding hands, hugging, and casual kissing or pet kissing. And then he draws a line that'll come important for him. Then he goes on to prolonged kissing. Then he has light petting, heavy petting, and intercourse. You wanted an honest answer to how far is too far. Well, for whatever my personal opinion is worth, there it is. In other words, where he draws the line. I don't believe most healthy Christians in a dating relationship, whatever their age, 
can progress much beyond this line without asking for trouble. You need to realize that, uh, that past this point, you begin to arouse in each other desires that cannot be righteously fulfilled outside of marriage. It's important for you to make a decision where you will draw the line in your dating relationships. If you've already set your standards and drawn your own lines, that's probably the only way you'll be able to make your commitment stand up in a situation requiring some serious resisting. Well, son, I hope I've been of some help. I love you so much as a son and as a good buddy. After you've read this and have given these ideas some thought, maybe a heart-to-heart -heart talk about it can help fill in some of the cracks and round off some of the edges. I'm ready. Love, Dad. One of the first thoughts that comes to my mind is for how many of us here would say where we would have loved a dad like that, right? Such wise counsel. But for whatever it's worth, I want to offer that to you as we think through these seven steps because the Bible doesn't really give us specifics. It's something we have to figure out with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I hope this is helpful to you as uh, you figure that out for your own lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. And thank you for this chance to be together and to talk about such important things. Thank you for this group, the love that we have for one another, a place where we can come and kind of be open and honest about these things that are so important in our lives and, and really seek you for wisdom. I pray for each man and each woman here that you would not only give them a passion to know you and to please you, but that you would give them the wisdom to know how to do that in this important area of their lives so that you can give us the right answers. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.